0: All right, let's look at Revelation 15. I'm going to read straight through 15 and 16. It'll take just a few minutes. It's really good stuff. Pretty heavy stuff. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. When I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels Seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth. The seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague. Was so severe. All right. Sorry about that. I got a people that still wanted to come in on that. Got kind of distracted for a minute there. So, fifteen and sixteen obviously go to debt together. This, these, these, uh, these two chapters were obviously really, really heavy because it's recording for us basically the, the time and God's purposes or at least let me put it this way, not so much chronological time, but a description of the characteristics of the times that men live in that uh, depict when the wrath of God is, is poured out upon the earth. And I just want to remind you guys again that um, I think all of us have probably been indoctrinated in theology in terms of... Uh, Eschatology with a pre-trib mindset. And the tendency is going to be for us to hear these things and to take them and read them literally. And I think what you're going to see tonight as I teach through these notes is that these two chapters, probably of all of them, are going to give us the clearest picture of the fact that what we're looking at is prophetic symbolism. That we're not going to be talking about, and I don't believe that John saw or he is saying that we're going to see these things literally, the way that we would think of them but in fact they represent truths that are spiritual truths depicting also though visible manifestation uh, of the heart of man and what's going on on the earth so we know that he started in in John with his revelation with his visions of judgment with seals seven seals that Jesus only the Lord Jesus was able to open that scroll and and it released these seven seals then the trumpets and now we see um, the seven bowls or seven woes or seven plagues they're called depending on who's talking about them. So the scene is going to shift now again from earth to heaven from chapter 14. We saw the harvest of the earth at the end of chapter 14. And now we, right away, now we go back to a scene that John sees heaven. And so this has been characteristic of all the way through Revelation excuse me, is that we see one time John seeing what's going on from earth's vantage point and another time from heaven's vantage point. And now these are going to be seen from heaven's vantage point. We also recognize, and we've talked about this, the, the, uh, the fact that we're looking at reciprocal visions, repetitive visions that in a sense they're overlapping, they're depicting, or seeing John is seeing the same truths, the same things but from different vantage points. But it seems as though God might be emphasizing certain things more and and, and becoming more and more uh, somber and sober in his depiction of these things as he's gone from seals to trumpets and now to bowls. So the relationship of these is really, it's very clear. The outpouring of the bowls now is going to reveal the very end of history As we know it now, when that is and what that is, we don't know for sure in the sense that we could be living in it right now. It could be still 500 years from now. Only God knows. But it's depicting what is the end of of history as mankind knows it. It's the end of the first heaven and the first earth. Today's Earth Day. Hey, Uh happy Earth Day to all you earthlings. Another pagan holiday to celebrate. (coughs) How exciting. God is going to, we know, recreate the heavens and the earth, and so this is a picture now of the end of the first earth and the first heaven. Now these bowls are going to bring, as I said, a more detailed picture of this cosmic conflagration, which records the destruction of the earth and the sky and the atmosphere that we saw in the sixth, in the, excuse me, the sixth seal. Chapter 6 12 through 17 records that we won't go back and read it, but we're going to see that it's the same and very similar wording Um, The trumpets and the bowls the first four especially are almost identical So it's really easy to see how the seals the trumpets and the bowls It's becoming redundant to say it are depicting the same thing again and again We see a great earthquake in both the sixth seal and in the seventh bowl In fact, it's an earthquake that is such has never been seen since man was on the earth. It says in verse 17, to the extent that every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. The same thing is said in the sixth seal, but it was reversed in language. It was the mountains first and then the islands, but it's the same thought. But the most sobering fact, and as I was preparing this, I was just struck with it really strongly today, the most sobering aspect of these chapters is that with these last seven woes, God's wrath is completed. And so we're gonna see that these are not chronological visions. They're not depicting the order that is gonna happen in history. In fact, we've already gone ahead to some things and then come back, but we're also going to see that this is important when we get to chapters 19 and 20, they're going to be saying the same thing from another vantage point as 17 and 18 that we'll begin looking at next week. Perspectives of the same history of the end and the final battle. So the beginning in, John, in chapter 15, John sees what appears to be a sea of glass mingled with fire And the Old Testament prophets often referred to this. They've seen this firmament in the Old Testament, in the prophetic writings, and they called this both earth's ceiling and heaven's floor. It's an interesting thing. I I was reading a book last year, well, actually it wasn't last year, a few months ago, about um, where is heaven? And this author, man, who was so heavy, it was such a powerful way that this guy theologically explained it, is that heaven is right now all around us. We have this thought that heaven's somewhere, you know, up there. But in fact, in a a very real sense, biblically, uh, heaven is all around us. So literally, when we pass on to the next life, we just pass from this to the next, just going from, it's like there's no no barrier any longer between what we know to be earth and what is heaven. And that's what this firmament is describing, is whatever is seen in scripture to be the ceiling of, of earth and the floor of heaven is what is what John is seeing, and there's more uh, examples of that being described in Exodus 24 and Ezekiel 1 that you can again read on your own. But just as John, with uh, just, excuse me, just as with the trumpets, John sees now angels, seven angels that see seven angels who will inflict these last plagues, and then he will see heavenly worship before the judgment begins. It's interesting is that he sees the angels. They have these seven plagues and it'll be described in detail. But before that, before they're poured out, there's worship again. And who does he see worshiping in chapter 15? He sees those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps in their hands. So the word that you is used, you know, the Greek word to just to describe them, and, and there's a phrase that is one word. The phrase is those who had conquered the beast in English. It's one Greek word, nakeo. And that word is translated in the New Testament often as the word overcome. So it's an interesting word that he it's only one Greek word that is, many English words are used to communicate what that word is saying. One commentator it says that what, it, it, what it's saying is that what appears on the earth to be bad or negative, but in fact from heaven's view is seen as it really is rightly. So what is looked like looks like as, as this beast and this dragon and this false prophet overcoming and destroying the church is, is that God sees it as, no, in fact, these, from, an earth, from, from heaven's perspective, these are the enemies of the, of the Lamb who those who are holding fast to their testimony so from the earthly perspective it is the beast overcoming the witnesses of god we saw that in chapter 11 chapter 13 but in reality it is that they Nakao, they overcame their enemies by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony which is recorded in revelation 12:11. so that's kind of a cool thought to me is that and i think again it's a challenge from god for us to see things rightly You know, I think one of the challenges that we face as Christians is the battle for our minds and how we choose to view things, how we choose to view life, how we choose to view um, what is going on in the world around us, um, how we understand uh, what's taking place around us. I mean even tonight Kath and I were talking over dinner and (coughs) know as typical I usually I usually ask her almost every night hey how you doing babe how you doing you know and and she said oh she goes you know I'm feeling uh she goes not discouraged but just concerned you know about the state of things and we've got one of our kids is struggling with their business in Southern Cal you know Kara and Todd their business is just getting hammered and we talked to her a couple of days ago and she was really discouraged and so you know we we have that kind of in our heart but i just reminded her which she already knew you know what god's got this god's at work in this god's this is in his hands you know as hard as it is we know the lord is in control and i think this is the challenge of of what john is reminding us of and what god is doing through these visions He's, he's saying this is what it looks like on the earth but this is really what i see this is really what's happening And I mean, we have to battle to keep our minds right. We got to get our minds right, as Cool Hand Luke would say. And these these saints are singing two songs, or maybe one song, with two different subjects. They're singing what is the song of Moses, which is an old song, and you can read that song. It's a long song. It's recorded in Exodus 15:1. It was the song that they sang. After they had crossed through the Red Sea, when God had delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh, when he had liberated them from Egypt, from captivity, and he had destroyed their enemies. But they're also singing the song of the Lamb. And we saw in chapter 14 that this was a song that no one else could sing except the elect. And it's a new song. It's a song of the triumph of the Lamb. His triumph through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and through the through the coming righteous judgment of god so th- this song is the last and this is a story the last and great exodus and the ultimate salvation of god's people that we're going to be seeing now through the rest of this book that is foreshadowed in the exodus of Genesis of uh, Ex- the book of exodus it was foreshadowed when the israelites as we know left egypt in moses's day so so there's a there's a drawing here of God is saying, this is the true Exodus. This is the Exodus that the book of Exodus spoke of. This is the redemption that the blood over the doorpost spoke of. This is the judgment that the the Red Sea promised and spoke of. So we're seeing that in in these verses and in these chapters that deal with these incredible judgments. This is God's Red Sea, in a sense, the final judgment, the final Exodus, and the final deliverance for the people of God. Psalm 98.1, and I've got it there in your notes, it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. I think the psalmist is prophesying what we're reading here. You know, David or whoever, Asaph, whoever wrote that psalm, was seeing was and prophesying as were the prophets of old. When they spoke of what was to come on the day of the Lord, they were seeing what we are looking at here in the book of Revelation. So these words of this new song are a blend of a lot of Old Testament verses, and I've got them written down there for you. You can look at them on your own. They're all in different texts in the Old Testament, but it's just a blending of verses that we're speaking of in, in a prophetic sense of a final fulfillment of those things. And then in verses five through eight, the angels receive the bowls after the worship is finished. And, and just as with the start of the cycles uh, of the seals, and just as with the start of the trumpet cycles, it begins with heaven opening up in verse five. It's amazing. Look what it says. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And so heaven opens up. And out of the sanctuary, these seven angels with these seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes, come out of the sanctuary. And they appear with seven gold, bowl, golden bowls, listen, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And I love this verse. Verse 8 says, The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished and so we just get this awesome picture of the power of God of the holiness of God of the of the the righteous anger of God of the the care of God for his people of uh, of just the, the finality of things i mean this is just like i mean if you were watching some sort of a, of a great you know, movie of some you would be this would be like the ultimate climax where you know it's like this is it. This is the this is the goal of all I've been seeing or hearing or watching. And so now in chapter 16, the first four bowls are poured out in, in verses one through nine. And it says in verse one that a loud voice gives the command to go and pour out the earth on the earth um the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And it's almost as though that loud voice is saying that this this is, this is the command. This is, this, this is an authoritative command now that is coming from the sanctuary, that it's time. It's time now to go and pour out these final vials, if you would, these final bowls, and they are bowls of God's wrath. And I just stopped and I thought, you know, we really need to understand rightly the wrath of God because I don't know if, you, you know, I'm sure you are like me. You think of wrath, and it's always got a really negative, horrible, you know, harsh in a sense um, connotation or meaning to me, and 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 it is in in, in many senses. <coughs> but it, it's something more than that in the mind, and I believe in the mind of heart of God, and, and also in what is what is revealed in Scripture. I think it's I think it's more than that. Um, and I think what we can find from it is, for example, in the Old Testament, especially if you look into Genesis. Abraham, we know, was called by God to live by faith, and he, was, and he lived by faith. He, he followed God. He left his, his nation. He left his family. Um, he, he went out of obedience because God said, come, and I will give you a land that will be your own, and he followed. And then we know that he, he believed God when God spoke to him regarding righteousness and, and, and on true faith, he believed God, and God did reckon that to him as righteousness. And we know that in the New Testament, and by God, he was commended for living by faith because he believed God's word. And he listened. He waited for God's promises to be fulfilled. Now listen to this carefully. Scripture teaches us, though, that as Abraham was waiting, God was also waiting for something. And in fact, Abraham would... I still waiting. Hebrews 11 tells us that that he did not receive promises. It was left for us to receive them. You and I are the benefactors of what God promised Abraham. But Abraham lived his life waiting, waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. But God, we know, during this time, and I'll show you why in a moment, was waiting as well. And, and the answer to the question is, what was he waiting for? Turn to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Verses 13 through 16. Rick? Yes. Uh, may I ask you what translation you are using? Yeah, I'm using the ESV. Thank you. Uh huh. Sorry, I should have told you guys that. So, what was if Abraham's waiting, and then and we're talking about now what wrath is in a sense, or what it, how it's understood in Scripture. It says in Genesis. 1513 then the lord said to abram know for certain that your offspring know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and they will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but i will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions now listen to this as for you you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Listen, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God was waiting, just as He did almost as a picture of before the flood, when finally the, the, the rebellious, the unrighteousness, the violence on the earth was with the, the, the cup was filled to the brim when God brought judgment upon the earth during Noah's time. Well, that's what is happening in this picture here in Genesis as well, is that the Amorites, wicked, evil, violent people, who they lived in the land, God was waiting and waiting and waiting for their wickedness, their, their unrighteousness to be full, the, the, the bowl of God's wrath, if you would, to be filled. And then it overflows in judgment. So, I, you know, it's an interesting thing. Jesus spoke of this. used the same analogy in Matthew 23 when he was speaking to the Pharisees. He said, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. It's almost as though God waits um, for till, as long as he can before he brings judgment. There's a there's a point where finally it's almost as though if you use the analogy when you're filling up a bowl or you're filling up a cup and finally it gets to the very top and it has to overflow because there's no more room in it. That's the picture that's being used here by scripture. And that has to do with how God feels regarding pouring out his wrath, even on a wicked man, even on a, on a, on a, on a rebellious evil man. He, he waits. And we know that Peter speaks of this, that God is patient and long-suffering, not willing that any would perish, Peter says. So there's this picture here of of the wrath of God being poured out. But I don't think we should just think of it as, oh, yeah, you know, this is great. God's going to deal with, you know, his enemies and deal with our enemies. And, you know, no, it's not that. It's so much more filled with the heart of God and the righteous justice of God. In the fifth seal, if you go back to your notes, the martyrs cried out, how long until you avenge our blood when they were under the altar? Chapter five. And the answer was not until the number of martyrs is filled up. So it's interesting. God has quotas or has, he has measures of things that somehow scripture is teaching us that, that, and again, I think this simply has to do with God's sovereign purposes, you know, because God doesn't live in time. He's outside of time. It's not as though he's waiting for a time period. But in his perfect plan, as he's already ordained it to be, some things have to be fulfilled and have to be complete. And then he does what he does. So that's beyond my understanding, your understanding. That's just We're talking about now the nature and the character of eternal God. But the vindication and relief of the church whose suffering will coincide with the bowl of wrath being filled. And these plagues that we're reading about are the last ones because in them, God's wrath is completed and his unrivaled reign, he will be seen to be king and Lord of all and his people are going to finally be avenged. Our God is a holy, righteous judge who is a consuming fire in his holiness and righteousness. And if we read verses five through seven, this was the; these are the words of the third angel who poured out the bowl, which we'll get to in a moment, but this is what he said as he poured out the bowl. He said, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar, that's the martyrs again under the altar, saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So, I mean, wow, you just get such a powerful picture and image of the justice of God, the righteous justice of God, the holiness of God. The, I mean, just again, beyond our comprehension, uh, the, the The nature of this God, who is holy to the degree that the writer of the Hebrew says that he is a consuming fire in his holiness, so we 're now viewing history's end Can God's see history. real quick? yeah, jump in Kev please uh just uh on that scripture where it says they deserve it my uh one of my side notes um say that they are worthy of it wow. Yeah. That's an interesting phrase. Anybody else, while we stopped here, anybody else have any thoughts that you want to add or questions? I just think, you know, when you're speaking of God's judgments and how it avenges, but it's kind of like to me, I see it as a a wave coming on shore and there's believers and non-believers and all the people are there and they're all going to be washed over with this wave. So like we don't get to escape as believers. At least it sounds like that, that we don't get to escape all of these judgments. Well, we'll talk about that in okay. a minute. Yeah, we'll talk about that. That's a good point, though. Because need, we need to understand how this affects us if it does. So we're going to see now history's end. And God's patience has finally been exhausted. And I really believe what we're going to see in a moment and what one of the plagues is that his common grace is withdrawn. Do you guys know what I mean by common grace? Common grace is just simply the grace of God that all of mankind is blessed to experience just by being alive and being on the earth. It's just the goodness of God for men. For all men, the, the righteous and the wicked are all under common grace. The grace that we have in Christ is not common grace. It's much more than that. Obviously, it's it's it is the eternal grace of God that is for the believing. Uh, but the common grace is the sun coming up, the warmth of the sun, the beauty of the day, the birds, the you know the living life, experiencing life, having family. It's all that we know and love. Um, and and, and that's, that's going to be withdrawn in one of these coming plagues. You'll see it in a moment. So now the bowls are being poured out on the earth. And in answer to Jeanette, which you just asked, we, we see in verse 2 that these first bowls are not poured out on all people, only on the ungodly. It says, look what it says in verse 2. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores Came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. Okay, so we would have to, um, first of all, don't take sores literally. He's not talking about visible sores that you're going to see on their body, like we, like you know, Job experienced. That's not what he's talking about. He's speaking of spiritual truth and spiritual realities, it's symbolizing. About the state of heart, the state of mind, the state of their existence, um, where it's just unhealthy, you know, it's 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 ugly, you know, it's it's contagious in a sense, and and so it's it's a it's a picture of 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 those who have the mark. The mark again of the beast is not a literal mark. It's not something you're going to see. It isn't going to be written on your forehead or on your hand, contrary to what we've been taught maybe in some of our past uh, classes on these things. It's, it's uh, the mark is something that is the identity that, you've, that men, we talked about last week, that men willfully choose to worship the beast. And so the, the first plagues are poured out on these people. The second plague is like the Egyptian plague of blood. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. <clears throat> And it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died. That was in the sea. So again, what does the sea represent anybody want to jump in here. What's the sea represent in, in apocalyptic literature. The world. Chaos of fallen humanity. The chaos of fallen humanity. And so rather than the literal interpretation of the ocean turning to blood. I think it also symbolizes. I believe it really symbolizes the murderous violence of fallen humanity, as it increases at the end, bloodshed, violence, murder. I mean, we're talking about. And Paul spoke of that. If you remember to Timothy, he said, "You know, in the last days, people will be." And he goes on and he describes what they are: and which murderers, you know, violence, you know, um, you know, uh, rebellious, lawless. So, this is a picture of this chaos of humanity and bloodshed and and violence and murder and probably abortion and all that man does in in his fallen nature. So, the the picture here is is one of increasing, of things becoming increasingly this way. The third plague, the rivers and the springs turn to blood as well. And th- with this, this angel sang that song that we just went through with the, of the justice of God. And the martyrs uh, are also singing from under the altar. And again, there's a gruesome imp- implication of this judgment symbolizing the, the, the water becoming undrinkable. And this is interesting. Isaiah speaks of, of those who persecute the people of God drinking their own blood. I mean it's it's gross stuff. Isaiah 49, 24 through 26 speaks of this. And in fact, it's it's again and again in scripture there's examples of where God speaks of, of of the enemies of his people eating their own flesh and drinking their own blood. It's a picture of judgment, is what it is. And so this is a picture not of literal waterways turning to blood and polluting, you know, the earthly waterways, although obviously that does happen. It happens increasingly. But it's a more of a picture, again, uh, of the fact that that, it, it is that the, the, the judgment of God comes upon the unbelieving to the degree that they are drinking their own violence. They're, 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 they're receiving the just due, if you would, of what has been in their heart and in their mind. And then we come to this fourth bowl. And the angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire and they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. And I really believe this is not, this is not the the sun literally, although obviously we know that, you know, there can be changes in climate and drought and all of those things. but I really think what this is speaking of more symbolically, and again, if you remember that we're living in these things now, we're not waiting for these things to happen. This started, these things started in, in the beginning with the church, all the way back in the beginning of Revelation. These, these judgments came immediately in chapter four of Revelation with, with the persecution of the church, the suffering of the church. That John was experiencing in his day and the, the all the apostles that were killed the prophets that had been killed the saints the the if you would the church of the Old Testament that was martyred and so when we read these we're not looking forward to something that's going to happen in a seven-year period or the first three and a half years of a seven-year period at the very end that's not what we're looking at we're looking at the church age and what is characteristic of the earth and Fallen mankind in the world in which we live and so that's what we're seeing, but it we're seeing it more clearly and and depicted more more blatantly powerfully soberly So I really believe that this fourth bowl is a picture of common grace as it's gradually withdrawn from mankind Do you wonder why the family unit is breaking down? You know, do you wonder why you know? Um, you know, people can kill people. I mean, they've always killed people casually, but it seems as though it's becoming more and more prevalent. Maybe it isn't, but it seems that way. Because God's hand is being withdrawn from the common grace of God is being withdrawn to the point of where at the very end, the very end, we know that Paul tells us in Thessalonians that Satan will be loosed who he has been bound at the cross because of the cross. But at the very end, he will be loosed in a way that will the man of lawlessness will come forward. And, and, and will, at that point, the, the church will be suffering tremendous persecution. But at that point, it's because the common grace of God has been fully withdrawn. And, and evil has been freed to just run rampant. And I believe that's going to be a very, very short period of time. Paul says that. And Jesus says that had those days not been cut short, you know, even the elect would not have survived. Jesus said that in Matthew. So we know that it's going to be a short period of time where it's going to be very hard, but God will vindicate and God will save. And there will be much martyrdom. There's going to be much more martyrdom because that's the calling of the church. The church is called to suffer. That's the identity of the people of God, is that that's that's our calling, is to live a life in obedience that will probably lead to suffering in this world, because of all the things that we're looking at here. Revelation 7.16 is promised that the saints shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, and the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. So this this picture of this withdrawing, if you would, of God, and then this scorching heat from this fourth bowl has already been addressed regarding us in Revelation 7. Does that make sense? Where God has promised his people, his elect, that that will not characterize them, that God's hand will never be lifted from them. That this grace that we know, that this joy that we have, that we find in life, that is in spite of circumstances, in spite of of, of our, what we're going through in life. That God's faithfulness is always with us and that the joy of, of the Lord can be our strength through all of these things. And so that's already been promised back in chapter 7 and 144,000, and they were sealed with God and that promise was given to us. So this picture of this bowl is not going to affect you and me. That's another reason I just don't believe it's literal. It's, symbol, it's symbolic, prophetic symbolism. And that is a picture of the withdrawing of God's common grace over man. But we're going to see the reaction at the end of the age of God's long suffering and common grace by those who this plague falls upon. The reaction of the people is they curse God. They curse the name of God who had the power over these plagues and they still did not repent or give him glory. And this is exactly the same response as we saw in the sixth trumpet. In chapter 9, they curse the name of God. So we can see that we're seeing the same things. Again, it's repeated visions. It's the same it's the same heart of people. It's just being seen increasingly more vividly through these visions. So they're showing their hardness of heart as they blaspheme the name of God. And they imitate then, of course, the one whose mark they carry. Because we know that in chapter 13, that the beast blasphemed. The name of God, so this is just characteristic guys and gals of, of the heart of, of fallen man and and of the power of the of the dragon and of the beast and of the two beasts to um, demand worship and to to call the people of the earth to worship the dragon and the beast. in verses 10 to 20 now we find these three last bowls the fifth, sixth, and seventh. And so the fifth bowl, uh, let's take a look at it in verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. And this is similar again to the, the Egyptian plague of darkness and. And we see this, but what is this depicting? Excuse me. It's, it's, we, he tells us it's the darkening of the beast's kingdom. This is the beast's reign. This is the dominion of darkness. Just like, the, just like Satan, this is the, the beast's darkness. And it's always been, it's been shrouded in darkness because it's all been based on a lie from the very beginning. When, when Satan tempted Eve in the garden, It was a lie. He told a half truth. He told something that was not true. Everything that Satan does, everything that Satan does, everything that he has done, everything that the the spirit of the age has its main ploy is deception and delusion and darkness. And so this is a picture of that darkness increasing. It's a dominion, a domain of delusion and confusion. And we know that John tells us in the Gospel of John that guilty people love the darkness because it, it covers their sinful acts. They feel like they can do what they do in the dark because no one will see it, but, but God sees it. But the people in this, in this plague, this fifth plague, they, they don't find any comfort. There's no comfort for them to be found in the darkness. It's it's a, it's only in anguish. They gnaw their tongues. It says they they gnaw their tongues in anguish. So all they know, even in in their in their delusion that they're free, in their delusion that they're, you know, um, that there is no God, that there, there, or the fact that they, they know there is, but they hate the, this God anyway. They choose to to not to to hate this God. They choose to worship the creature rather than the creator. In their anguish, there's there's great darkness, and they still will not repent of their deeds. So we're seeing just, again, characteristics, even of the world we live in. The sixth bowl is, is a preparation for the final battle. And it says that he poured out, the angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east interesting to prepare the way for the kings from the east because in revelation 9 if you remember going back to that verses 13 to 15 the euphrates first appears in the book of revelation as a restraining boundary holding back god's impending judgment and so the 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 the, the, the kings could not the enemies of the people of god could not cross the euphrates it was a, it was a A boundary, a natural boundary that kept armies from crossing in. And it was God's means of protecting his people and also of holding back judgment. But we see here what happens is that the Euphrates is dried up. And now these kings from the east can come representing the evil that's coming against the people of God. The prophets predicted this that the Euphrates would be dried up, and it, especially in relationship to Babylon. In Isaiah 41, 46, and 44, there's prophetic uh, words given regarding the Euphrates drying up so that it, so that, and Babylon being destroyed. So the drying of the Euphrates is a signal from, um, from God in the vision that this, there's going to be relief coming and there's going to be release for the church, and there's going to be the defeat of God's enemies. It's a picture of God's, uh, God's judgment, removing anything now that was protecting God's people. In a sense, it, it, it's removed, and, and now they're able to move toward, to come against. But as they cross to make war against the saints and against the Lamb, they are really gathering, we're going to see, to meet their own destruction. Um, And I'm going to tell you again, there will not be a war in the Valley of Armageddon in the nation of Israel, I don't believe. When I was there a couple of years ago, um, we went onto a high hill and we overlooked the Valley of Armageddon. And um, it's a beautiful valley where all these wars previously were fought. And and um, the one that men believe that this is where there's going to be a final battle where the armies are going to come against Israel and God's going to come... No, I don't believe that's, that's going to happen at all. I think all of that is symbolic that, that what's going to happen is that, well, I'll tell you, see, you'll see in a moment, is that Jesus is going to return and destroy his enemies at, at the very end, right when, right when it's absolutely essential to preserve his own. But these world r- rulers are going to gather against the lamb because the dragon, the beast, and the false prophets have deceived them. And I'm going to say to you right now, when I say they will gather, they are already gathering. This is already happening. The spirit of the age is already at work in nations, already at work in the hearts of men, in the hearts of leaders who are antichrist. The spirit of antichrist is at work in the world right now. But there will be some come along who will um, draw all of those together um, at the end, and God will destroy that. That uh, alliance. Well, these these three, the beast, and the dragon, excuse me, and uh, and the false prophet, release three demonic spirits in the form of frogs, that go out into the world. Um, and again, frogs because again, it's a it's a sign of of the Egypt plagues. It's the same Exodus. Remember, I said that this is the true Exodus. So what we saw depicted there. Is fulfilled now. So he, the frogs are demons that are visual, visual, visual representations of, of the unbelieving and, uh, and of subtle demonic uh, processes that those who have been restrained are now being loosed to deceive the nations. So there's a powerful um, release now in, in the age, that at the end of the age, where demonic activity will increase in deception and delusion in in everything that is antichrist. Let's look at Revelation 20 verses 7 and 8. Very familiar text that we'll get to in a few weeks but just want to refer to it right now. And when the thousand years are ended that's that's the church age not a literal millennium, that's the church age, a thousand years, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. That's what we're seeing here in this sixth plague. That's what we're seeing here. This sixth bowl is this scripture. He will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for their battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. So we see now this, this gathering of, of darkness at the end, at the very end of the church age. And that's what we're seeing here in this sixth bowl. Now, amazingly though, all of a sudden, out of all this you know, heavy judgment and the wrath and the bowls and the things that we see, Jesus speaks. Isn't it amazing? In verse 15, and here's what he says. He says, behold, I am coming like a thief. Listen to these words, guys. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Okay, I'm coming like a thief. What does that depict? Unawares. Unexpected. So now listen, listen, listen to this now. This is another reason why we have to know that we're not talking about literal, um, rat, literal plagues and things along those, along those lines that we've been reading about. Because it's going to be an unpredictable, a thief, like a thief in the night, coming. Jesus called himself that. In fact, he says in Matthew 24, people will be eating at the coming of the Son of Man, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. I've always tried to figure that out. I thought, wait a minute, this is the end of the tribulation and people are getting married? How could that be? Well, what I've come to understand is that life is going to be going on normal, like it is right now. Because we're not looking for literal sores, we're not looking for literal blood in the ocean, we're not looking for the sun to literally start scalding everybody. These are all symbols of the, of the world. These are all pictures of of what is happening in the spirit realm of what is going on on the earth, even right now. Of course, it's going to be, as I said a moment ago, getting increasingly more vivid and more powerful in its darkness and its delusion and its deception. Um, But, but it isn't going to be such that, that we're going to be able to count down the days and know It'll come suddenly. The Lord will come suddenly like a thief in the night. And I find that to be super fascinating because we've always looked for some things to have to happen before we think Jesus could return. Like something has to happen with the temple being built in Israel? No. Like something has to happen with... Three and a half years, literally, of time period of some really good stuff, and then three and a half years of some really terrible stuff. No, that's an interpretation of Daniel that is wrong. That's a, that's a, that's a pre-tribulation, um, you know, dispensational point of view that is totally not what we're teaching and understanding. No, what is going to be happening that's going to be preceding the Lord's return? These things are going to be increasing in the lives of men and women that you and I know that we love, in the world that we live in, through the media, through the radio, through the television, through the internet, through the movies, through elections, through whatever means the world uses to broadcast that the beast and the false prophet use, to broadcast this deception is going to just continue to be happening. Rick, may I, may I read something? Yeah. So Thessalonians says this, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like earth pains upon a woman Yeah. And child. That's it, man. That's it, yeah. That's <sighs> a, see, we, we've, we've just, had, I think, just such a kind of a strange view of these things that it's kind of lent us, because of the literal interpretation of the Book of Revelation, it's really jacked us up in some ways to not be able to, first of all, see what God is doing around us, not to understand the seriousness of the times we live in right now, um, you know, not to understand how God sees it right now, not in the future sometime, but right now, and that's really what we're learning and seeing in this in this book. So the seventh bowl will bring this whole cycle of all these judgments, seals, trumpets, and now bowls to an end. The seventh bowl. And it says in verse 17 that the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. It is done. Sounds a little bit like the cross, doesn't it? Yeah. Similar, three words. It is finished, it is done. This time though it is, what's, what is done is, the wrath of God has been, the bowl has been filled and is overflowing now and all that remains now is, is the final judgment. And so this seventh bold shows us the coming of the Lord. What will it be like? And there were flashes of lightning and rumbles, rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake, such as it were, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. Same thing was said in chapter 6, verse 12. Same thing was said in chapter 6, verse 12. And the great city, which we're going to see, In the next two chapters was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail. Because the plague was so severe, so what we're seeing this is what it will, this is a depiction of the return of the Lord. Let me read this to you from one of my commentaries. <clears throat> he says this: the great city Babylon is the bullseye in the target of this world-shattering strike by divine wrath, dead center in God's crosshairs. We have seen the great city as the site of our Lord's crucifixion and his witnesses' violent death. death. We have heard Babylon's fall announced and her malevolent role in seducing and intoxicating the nations identified in chapter 14, verse 8. And now we catch a glimpse of her demise, a sneak preview that will be expanded in the next two chapters of Revelation. Split into three parts, listen, she pulls down with her the cities of the nations. In one sense, like ancient Babylon, she is a physical city, one situated on seven hills, unmistakably Rome, for John's first readers. In another sense, however, like the beast from the sea, this Babylon is more than a single city or even civilization. The power grid of fallen human culture Political, economic, military, religious, and social is so tightly interlocking. Listen, that when its heart is shattered, the whole edifice crumbles. With Babylon's fall, all the world's cities fall. Pretty heavy stuff, huh? The scene of the city's destruction reassures the church that Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of its for his fierce wrath. Babylon has made the nations drink with the wine of her immorality, and John will soon see her cup brimming not only with abominations, but also with the blood of the saints, the witnesses of Jesus. She not only seduces those who are ensnared by her luxury and sensuality, but also employs the vicious beast on which she sits to assault and murder believers who resist her wiles. She seems to have the upper hand and boasts of her freedom to sin with impunity with none to call her to account. In chapter 18, we'll see this, but her sense, her smug sense of security is sheer delusion. God has record books and will judge both individuals and societies according to their deeds. Chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 tells us, God has remembered her iniquities and he will repay her in kind for her her arrogant assault on his honor and his people. So pretty heavy stuff. But uh, again, I think just to remember and to know the times in which we're living, I think going back to the words of Jesus in verse 15, Behold, I'm like a thief. You come like a thief, he says. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Don't let yourself get sleepy. Don't let yourself become complacent. Lackadaisical. Temptations could come in areas you never expected them. Old temptations could return things that you felt you had been already set free from. You could be tempted again. The enemy wants to delude and destroy and deceive, even, and especially the elect. So stay awake. Keep your garments on. What's that speak of? Holiness. It speaks of, of, of righteousness, that you may not be go, go about naked and be seen exposed. So we don't want to be vulnerable. We want to keep our keep the armor on, the armor of God, that the right, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, that all that we know, the helmet of salvation, the the all that we know, the 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 belt of truth. We we have all of these things that we know keep us um, in God. So we want to make certain that we keep ourselves clothed in the in the righteousness of Christ and don't allow ourselves to be guilty, to be condemned, to be vulnerable to, to the attacks of the enemy. Amen. Amen. Amen.